You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Kenneth Harl about his new book, Empires of the Steps, a history of the nomadic tribes who shaped civilization. Ken is a professor emeritus of classical and Byzantine history at Tulane University. He's one of the foremost experts on the steps civilization and on Roman history. Welcome to the show, Professor. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, it's a little daunting to get such um, publicity. Hey. As, an, as an academic, you publish your works in very specialized uh, journals or university press, and it's for a small audience, and your colleagues generally don't talk to you about it. And maybe an earnest graduate student 10 years later comes up and asks a question and you're stretching your imagination to remember, what did I write 10 years ago? <laughs> well, uh, well, hopefully I've got some good questions for you that, uh, that will entice people to pick up the book. Professor, I, I noticed this in the foreword of the book, um, but if you can, tell us how you came to write the book, because you didn't initially set out to, okay, I'll write this book. Oh, not at all, because my field has largely been in the um, Mediterranean world, uh, Greece, Rome, Byzantium, the ancient civilizations of the Near East. Um, I had interest in the steppe nomads because they repeatedly burst into these worlds, and I always treated them as outside intruders. And I was approached, oh, over 10 years ago by the teaching company, or now known as the Great Courses, to record a course on either the Mongols or the Silk Road. And I felt that that suggestion by customers was a little too limited, and I wanted to do the grand sweep, um, part for my own purposes, to find out who these people are. And the result was I recorded a course, and then 10 years later, I was approached about doing a general book, the current book, and I was nearing retirement, and it was actually ideal because I wrote a good deal of the book in isolation during the COVID pandemic. <laughs> um, and I changed my ideas on a number of subjects. I really made an effort to try to understand these people on their own terms rather than as outsiders. Um, and that's in part a result of my training. You know, I see the world through Greek and Roman eyes to some extent. Um, more than I should, perhaps. And uh, the result was this, this current book. And it's um, been very satisfying for me to be able to put all of this in context. And whatever the failures or the mistakes or shortcomings of the book, I hope it at least achieves the aim of informing people how important these different nomadic peoples are and that they're just not on the fringe of history, that they did play in a very important role. Well, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, because um, I think I, I at least had kind of a, a very veneer level of understanding of the nomadic tribes prior to reading the book, which has tremendous amount of detail in it. But let's start basic. And the title of the book is Empire of the Steps. And most people, I'm assuming, don't know what that refers to by steps. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what that means? These are the grasslands. The steppes are the grasslands that stretch from Eastern Europe, that would today be the boundaries of Hungary and Romania, uh, across uh, Southern Russia, all the way uh, to the Northern limits of the Chinese world, and uh, really to the, uh, the mountains of Manchuria. Okay. These are thousands and thousands of miles of grasslands. Uh, the vegetation is varied. Uh, some of the areas are extremely well watered. Uh, to the north, you have the great forest, the taiga, as the Russians would call it, 
of Siberia and Russia. To the south, you'll uh, encounter deserts or bodies of water, uh, such as the Gobi on the eastern steppes, which divides uh, the Mongol peoples from uh, the Han Chinese to the south. Um, uh, you'll have uh, easy access into uh, the regions where cities and literate civilizations flourish at different points in Europe, the Middle East, and China. And so they act as a corridor for the movement of people who know how to move across those steps. The people who have domesticated the horse, uh, who've perfected wheeled vehicles to move their mobile homes, and understand the seasons, uh, the patterns, of uh, herding animals, and so um, able to create a livelihood uh, based on stock raising and various goods that they can trade uh, with the urban civilizations based on agriculture. Okay. And so uh, that that would define the entire area. Okay. Well, let's. So now that we've defined the area, tell us what time period we're referring to in the book. Are you referring to in the book? Well, I'm referring to the periods where they played a significant role. And that required me in the first two chapters to paint uh, an image of where is all this happening? You know, history takes place in time and space. And how did these people come about? And it was the domestication of the horse on what we would call the South Russian steppes. Today, that would be Ukraine and Russia, um, which gave them the power to exploit the steppes. And that, that's about 4000 B.C., um, and at the time they domesticated the horse, the vast majority of horses on the planet were in that zone. Okay. The horse had largely died out in other areas, such as the Americas, where the species originally emerged. Um, and it will go all the way to the reign of Tamerlane, who ruled from 1370 to 1405. And Tamerlane is the last great conqueror who based his armies on the invincible horse archers of the steppes. And with his death and the last chance to resurrect the Mongol Empire, he's not the blood descendant, but he is in many ways the political descendant of Genghis Khan. Um, the steppes, um, they still retain their importance. In fact, Beijing today really wants to extend their control the way they had it in the 8th century across these lands. Um, but the world shifts. Uh, you have the development of oceanic trade uh, due to the Northwest Europeans that uh, perfect ocean-going vessels. And Russia and China, uh, over the course of two centuries, divide control of the steps between them. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. you touched on this just a little bit, but in the book, I, I'll call it your thesis, if you will. You say that the nomadic tribes helped shape civilization and the modern world. And you just mentioned horse, the taming of the horses as perhaps an example. Can you give us some other examples of how that occurred or things that they did that you think support your theory? Well, in part, it was the movement of peoples that led to the distributions of different language families that we see today. Okay. Uh, the Indo-European languages that stretch from Ireland to India, which gave rise to many of the languages spoken today, uh, and displaced earlier languages. Mm -hmm. And then the distribution of Turkish languages, which originated in Central Asia, but are now spoken widely uh, in different parts of the world. Um, in addition, uh, they are responsible for the transmission of ideas, technology, food, all sorts of notions. Um, 
the Silk Road, uh, which emerges as a trade route, uh, probably in the third century BC, perhaps earlier, that connected um, the Mediterranean world with China, and then um, continued well, well, in many ways, even down to this day, um, that was the route over which many religions passed. The spread of Buddhism from India to China was a result of its movement along the Silk Road, of which the nomads played a decisive role. They provided the guides, they provided uh, the easement to give water sources, um, they protected caravans, of course they taxed them for their benefit, and these tribes themselves embraced many of these faiths. Um, the Mongol armies comprised of um, uh, warriors who were Christians, uh, Muslims, Manichaeans, Buddhists, all of these religions spreading across Eurasia in large part with the help of these nomads. And then the most dramatic is, of course, uh, the Mongol Empire, the greatest land empire ever created. Uh, the 13th century is really the Mongol century. And whatever the costs of the Mongol Empire, and I don't, and I don't whitewash that. There were terrible costs paid in, in Mongol mm -hmm. conquest. Uh, the resulting trade led to the transmission of all sorts of goods, um, paper making, the Islamic world, uh, gunpowder to the Europeans, and then turned it into a deadly weapon, um, <laughs> and turned it on their uh, the the original <laughs> inventors, the Chinese, <laughs> with with unfortunate consequences for China. Um, and then they also played very critical roles in creating certain kingdoms, which uh, I talked about the Kushans in India, so important for Buddhism. Um, I, I gained a whole new appreciation for Kublai Khan uh, and realized, given the history of China, that Kublai Khan united China as much as conquered China. And I don't know if that would have happened had he not done that. That today may have been a series of warring states. Yeah, I got that sense in reading it. So what I'm hearing is some of the things that, let's say, underscore your theory that they help with modern civilization or creating modern civilizations, global trade, technology, the spread of religion. But I, I think most people today would say, wait a minute, technology, because we have a very modern notion of technology. Right. What type of technology are you referring to? Well, the one thing about the nomadic peoples is they're extremely adaptive and they have a very steep learning curve. And so if they witness uh, superior iron technology, as they do quite early, uh, they adapt it. And that's how the Turks got their start. They were great iron workers in the 6th century AD and subjects of another empire and then rebelled. Um, uh, another point would be the use of gunpowder and all the engineering techniques that Chinese and Iranians had perfected for siege warfare, and they turned it on the Europeans with great devastating effect, especially in Russia. Um, they also invented uh, two forms of military excellence that were essentially paradigm shifts. Uh, first was the white chariot. Um, the spoke wheel vehicle pulled by horses and a horse bred to do this. And this is invented by peoples on the steppes, oh, probably before 2000 BC, and is spread across Eurasia very rapidly. And then uh, six, 700 years later, they came up with uh, the horsemen armed with a composite bow. And that type of cavalry would dominate the battlefield until the advent of modern firearms in really the 1500s. Right. And those firearms are really a result of the Mongols 
embracing the gunpowder technology and transmitting it to Europe. Uh, uh, so uh, technology is not computers. Uh, it would be uh, crop rotation, for instance, mm -hmm. certain types of crops and spices that were in China were then brought over to uh, the Middle East and, and back and forth, um, better iron working, um, especially in iron. Um, Turks had an incredible reputation for iron working, uh, even admitted by their foes. Um, the transmission of technology. One thing is um, Genghis Khan and his sons and grandsons probably had a better sense of the world than anyone else. Mm -hmm. right. um, and cartography really changed as, yeah. a yeah. as a result of that. Well, okay. And so one of the other things you talked about is global trade. And you've been talking about it right there. And in that context, and you mentioned this already, uh, I think in the third century, the Silk Road became important. Again, for folks that may not be particularly familiar with it, other than maybe if they saw it in a movie somewhere, tell us what the, what the Silk Road was and what its significance was for these tribes, these nomadic tribes. Well, there are a series of trade routes, and it tends to expand and change direction at times, but ultimately it connected the Mediterranean world um, to China. And it had to go along very specific routes where you had the water and the supplies. And that meant it would cross sections of the steppes, particularly um, what is called the Tarim Basin. Today, it's uh, under control of the Chinese. That's where the Uyghurs are. Um, it has a few narrow points, such as the Jade Gate that leads into China. And along these routes um, dwell nomadic peoples, uh, in large part uh, in the middle sections. And then in its later extensions, that would go to the Volga, uh, which would connect the Black Sea to the Baltic, um, the, the routes around the Caspian, um, other branches that go off into the eastern steppes. All of these routes had large sections of them went through the lands of nomadic peoples. And these people immediately appreciated the importance of the route. Uh, nomads have to trade. Mm -hmm. And if they can't trade, they'll raid. Right. And, and then in exceptional circumstances, they're so good at raiding, someone can build an empire either on the steppes or in the settled zones and, and, and exploit an immense amount of resources and great, create a great imperial state. But they have to have foodstuffs. There are certain manufactured goods they cannot make. And if they can trade their, uh, their furs, their leather goods, um, felt that they can make from uh, the wool of their sheep, all of these products are in high demand. Uh, they also provide labor, sometimes in the form of immigrants, often as warriors. Many in empire realized it's actually more practical to hire these guys to fight other nomads rather than to fight them ourselves. Right. Um, there's a long history of that in China. <laughs> it continues today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the Romans come up with the same idea, you know, right. well, right. put them on the payroll, you know. <laughs> All right. So, so let's talk about, we've been talking about the, the real positive contributions, if you will. But how did somebody like Attila the Han or Genghis Khan create their kingdom? And now I assume we're going to get into what we might call the more negative side of the story. But, but how did they create their kingdoms? Well, first, um, you, two, you, you choose probably the two most familiar people right. uh, from the nomads. Uh, and, uh, and they both have great names. Uh, Attila is Scourge of God, 
And um, Genghis Khan means universal lord or oceanic lord, something like that. Uh, the only other good title is Prince of Destruction for Tamerlane, which is my favorite. Uh, and I, I, I used to tell that to my students, and they would laugh nervously. Uh, but um, in each instance, you're dealing with a brilliant, uh, charismatic figure who is able to unite the tribes into a confederation. And typically, these confederations comprise a group of inner tribes. These would be the traditional Mongols or the original tribes of the Huns, and then all sorts of subject and vassal people um, who are attached and are required to provide military forces. Um, not always cavalry, sometimes it could be infantry, or if it's uh, a subject area, it could be even you know corps of engineers, which both Attila and Genghis Khan fielded. They we realized we need to take cities, and these guys can do it. Um, they are expert at extorting goods from their neighboring empire, China or the Roman world. Uh, in the case of Rome, it's gold. In the case of China, it's silk and other goods, uh, particularly Chinese brides, um, which always look good. And the purpose is to distribute them among the various vassal leaders and the members of your inner tribes to win their loyalty and tell them we can gain more. Um, these empires depend very heavily on the genius of this individual, and yet they appreciate what they see around them, and both Attila and Genghis Khan hired scribes, people who could keep records. Um, they understood the importance of trade. They built, in effect, some kind of market city where goods uh, and booty could be uh, traded and would attract uh, people to their service from all sorts of backgrounds. So you have, if, if I'm understanding correctly, part of the attraction was the actual personality or charisma, if you will, of the leader. But yeah. they also, they raided, they traded, and that's how they built their empire going out further. Is that correct? Yes, and they had organizational genius. They knew how to organize these tribes and based it on both loyalty and competence. Okay. without regard to origin. And that's true of both Attila and Genghis Khan. One um, of the things that struck me, and tell me if I'm right about this, I think I read it this way, is that, however, when the leader died, when Genghis Khan or whoever died, there was a fracturing of the of the empire at that point, right? Yeah, very, very, very much. Um, first, um, the leader was a hard act to follow. Um, and second, uh, there was a rule, it's often called lateral succession by mm -hmm. academics, in which it didn't power didn't necessarily go to the oldest son. It went to the most charismatic and able uh, adult male of this extended family. And that could mean a brother, uncles, cousins. And invariably by the second and certainly by the third generation, there would be dangers of rivals for the position to fight among themselves. And then the neighboring empire could exploit that civil war. Uh, the Chinese were extremely adept at doing this on several occasions, and that could lead to the breakup of the confederation. They would become a series of uh, lesser tribes, um, would pose less of a threat, and um, and and so this notion, as the Romans would say, divide and conquer, would be a common policy. Now, to the nomadic peoples, um, that policy that protected urban civilizations was greatly resented. And if I can throw in an anecdote of mm -hmm. a Turkish Khan, 
it may be Tardu, we're not quite sure, uh, comes from a Byzantine source. Um, the Emperor Justin II of Constantinople sent an envoy to this Khan, and when he arrived to negotiate some kind of treaty, uh, the Khan just looked at him and went, oh, the Roman who speaks the ten tongues and the one lie. Um, <laughs> and then he probably kind of put his head back, which is a negative gesture, even in modern Turkish today. Mm -hmm. You know, I bring it up. Oh, gosh, I got to deal with this guy. He's obviously trying to maneuver me to do something I really don't want to do. <laughs> right. Well, one exception, though, right, to the idea that when the leader passed, you know, the charisma is gone. One exception, to, and, and there's fragmentation. One exception to that seems to be when Genghis Khan dies, Kublai Khan is able to keep that empire together, right? Yeah. Um, first, it goes to his third son, Ogadai, who was uh, able to keep the brothers focused <laughs> on, on fighting, expanding the empire rather than fighting among themselves, although there was always great tension among the different houses. And then Kublai Khan, um, who essentially won a civil war to gain position of great Khan and then made himself emperor of China. Um, Genghis Khan is the exception. The sons and grandsons any family that could count that number of able people is an extraordinary family. Um, yeah. um, yeah. didn't have it. Attila didn't have it. Genghis Khan was the exception. Well, conversely, and this almost sounded Shakespearean when I read it, Attila the Hun had a brother. Now, I'm probably going to mispronounce this. Bleda, B-L-E. Yeah, Bleda. Yeah. Bleda. And they co-ruled for a while, but things didn't end too well for Bleda. No. Um, joint rules like that. Um, generally end up in a in a, some kind of an assassination. He, his uh, blader was probably killed in a he was killed in a hunting accident, probably arranged by Attila. And the two had clashed repeatedly over policy as well as personal um, grievances. And you have to remember, there's always going to be a following around each prince, right. and the members of that circle are constantly fi finding reasons to hate the other circle. And this would draw both Bleda and Attila into these clashes. And um, um, one of them was over this this ugly dwarf that um, oh, had been acquired by Bleda, which he exalted and Attila thought was very t tacky and tasteless. And he married him off to uh, a woman of high standing. And this was insulting to uh, Attila's group. Um, and so all of these slights of honor are taken very seriously because... To these people, the martial skills of men and their honor is very, very high. And you cross it, um, that's a personal affront Yeah, yeah. that can only be avenged in blood. All right. Well, let me change directions a little bit on you and ask you if you'll talk about the role, because we don't really know much about this. I didn't before reading it. Talk about the role of women in these nomadic tribes. Well, that's an interesting uh, comment because... Given the harshness of survival, um, you can't cloister your women the way you would think in a medieval Middle Eastern society, Islamic society, or even uh, ancient Greek society. Um, Roman society is different in many ways. But, but this idea of them being the frail uh, people, um, that, that, that's, you don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's already attested archaeologically on the South Russian steppes with these kurgans, these burial mounds that have been excavated. And there's a, a major Ukrainian-American team right now trying to list them all. And uh, a third of them are burials of women of high rank, and they are equipped with weapons. Uh, and they clearly are the source of the Greek legend of Amazons. Uh, we have numerous instances of women fighting alongside with their men. They are in charge of driving the great vehicles. Uh, they have all sorts of skills that they must perform. And then within the royal families, the women exercise enormous political power. This is particularly true of Mongol princesses. Mm -hmm. um, they can determine whether they can put their son on the throne, um, when to call the great assemblies to elect a con. Um, they have enormous patronage. Uh, where they can influence generals and leading officials. Um, and they move around in public quite openly. Um, one of the best examples is um, Ahmed uh, Ibn Fadlan um, and his account, which gave rise to the movie, um, um, what was it, The Seventh Warrior? Um, the Thirteenth Warrior, sorry, The Thirteenth Warrior. Um, and he goes up to the Volga to meet a Turkish tribe that had recently converted to Islam, and he's shocked by the openness of the women. You know, they're not veiled. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're engaged in all sorts of activities which would be prohibited in an Islamic society. And, uh, you know, that's one aspect of nomadic culture that, you know, um, you just can't... Um, deny yourself that 50% of intelligence and labor force. You don't have the luxury. I got you. Well, let me ask you this. This is your area and you jump in and you do some more research. I'm curious, was there any tribe or anything that you learned that surprised you that you didn't know about before you started putting the book together? Well, um, I did mention Kublai Khan, but mm -hmm. I came out uh, with uh, enormous admiration uh, for both the Khazars and the Uyghurs, two Turkic people in the Middle Ages who established bureaucratic empires on the steppes, one in South Russia and one in what is now parts of Western China, or that's what the Chinese climate is. Um, um, that would today be Mongolia and part of the Tarim Basin. Uh, this is an enormous achievement. Um, and I really came to appreciate that achievement by studying all these other nomadic tribes. And in some ways, these are the culmination of their learning curve. You know, they're able to build these states, and then the Mongols will take it to a whole new dimension. But there were other people, such as the unknown Kushans, who played such an important role in the spread of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And I was aware of them because as a numismatist, I've uh, collected and studied the coins of the Kushans. They're, they're written in a Greek script. Uh, of an Iranian language, <laughs> uh, so you're reading royal names, you can make sense out of it. Um, but these were nomadic peoples who had lived on the borders of China, who entered the Middle East and Northern India, and were able to adapt existing institutions and their lessons they learned from China and the steppes to build this empire that promoted the Silk Road and really sponsored Buddhism. Um, and they're really almost an unknown people. Uh, you know, yeah. they're, they're forgotten. Um, and one of my former students, a very, very bright fellow who's studying to be a surgeon but loves history. And um, so many of my friends are former students. That's what my life is all about. And he said, you know, the Kushans were one of the, the great highlights to him because he knew nothing about them. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there was a lot speaking for myself. They're not in any course. They don't fall conveniently into yeah. any course, you know. Yeah, well, there was a lot speaking for myself that um, that I certainly did not know. Well, yeah. Professor, I'm going to end with kind of a curveball question, but it's okay. even relevant these days. You know, there's a lot of fighting now about what history can be taught, what history should be taught, et cetera. Talk, talk to me and to the to audience, if you will, about why history remains important in a general sense, and then perhaps even particularly why this era and the steps is still important today. Well, if, if you don't understand the past, you don't have a context to, to judge what you're going to do in the future. History learns, uh, it teaches you to think in terms of possibilities rather than just A, B. Um, specifically, the importance of Ukraine uh, and Russian attitudes of foreign policy, which were forged as a result of the Mongol conquest and rule. You can't understand Russian history without that. Um, Chinese aspirations of the Belt and Road Initiative very, very much reflects traditional Chinese interest in these regions going back to the Tang Dynasty. So not only does it give you context, it also allows you to see how humans um, faced with limited information had to make choices quickly um, and what the potential consequences are. Uh, and that is, um, you know, best summed up, if I can use a classical text, Thucydides um, judging um, the Athenian politician Themistocles is that he had a general knowledge of all sorts of subjects. And he was a great politician who could see the possibilities in the future based on his experience and generally was more correct than not in calculating what is the best route to take. There is, for my specific field, Greece and Rome, I feel they are extremely important for any society in which you have voters, because these are the earliest instances of governments in which voters count. Right. How can democracy function effectively? How can republics go wrong? You have to go back and look at those. And if I can play another plug, uh, not relevant to the book, five times in human history, voters have asserted themselves. The Greek city-states, the Roman Republic, the English Revolution, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. In all of these instances, these are subjects of history you must study if you're going to make an intelligent decision at the voting booth. And I'm not trying to endorse anyone one way or the other. No, no, I understand that. No, I really appreciate that answer. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Professor, that's all the time we have for today. Well, um, I thank you so much for yeah. inviting me. It's an honor to be here. No, you're very kind. Look, folks, you've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been speaking with author and historian Kenneth Harl about his new book, Empire of the Steps, A History of the Nomadic Tribes and How They Shaped Civilization. I learned a ton from it. You should pick it up. Professor, is there a website or other social media that folks can go to to learn more about the book? Or about you? Well, um, I'm I'm on a lot of podcasts all over the place, uh, history podcasts, um, and friends of mine are going to try to set up a website for me or something because I'm extremely um, primitive when it comes to technology. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. to read books in Latin and Greek. <laughs> but the so book, the book is available. 
uh, book is available on Amazon, Amazon um, Barnes and Noble, many bookstores. It's published simultaneously in the UK and the United States. Okay. Well, Professor, thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome again. And again, it, it really was a pleasure and honor to be here. You're so kind. Folks, the music for the show has been provided by Valerie Hunt Jester. And the Writer's Forum is produced by our very own Tyler O'Brien. Tune in on Tuesday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or Wednesday at 5.30 in the morning for the next segment of the Writer's Forum.